I'd like to invite everyone remaining to turn with me to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 6, today we'll begin at verse 13, as we're in the middle of this series in this book that, from all outward appearances, seems so far uh, removed from our context, so um, irrelevant, and we've found, I trust and hope, that it is immensely relevant to our lives and to us as a church. Today we come to this passage, Ezra chapter 6, verse 13. This is God's word. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bazanai and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel." And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Would you pray with me? Lord, we live in a world where there's constantly noise, distractions, words, and yet so much of it, most of it, is fleeting and empty. And we come now to the word, your word, which is anything but. It is full and robust, true, perfect. It sheds light to our path. It brings conviction to our hearts. It brings comfort to our souls. So we come expectantly today and ask that you would speak through this portion of your word. You would show us Christ. And then in seeing him, we would become more like him. And we would worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with great joy because of him. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Did you know that in every place, everywhere, at any time, where there are a group of people that gather together to call upon the name of the Lord, you there have a temple. Isn't that what Ezra has been teaching us? Some of these temples are in the form of a cathedral, huge and vast and beautiful and old. Other of these temples are, 
are under the shade of a tree to protect them from the sun. Other temples come in the form of a basement where no one can hear you and no one can find you or see you. In the Old Testament, though, as we come today to this passage, the temple was a building, a place, a representative place that, that symbolized God's presence with his people when they gathered to worship him, to call upon his name. In the New Testament, of course, we no longer need that building, for God doesn't dwell in temples made with human hands. He dwells in us. We are God's temple, the New Testament tells us, and we live and learn this from Ezra. And so here, as God's temple, and wherever God's temple meets to call upon his name, if indeed it is a place where God dwells and the people of God join together in unity, then of course we want to thrive as a meeting place with God, as a temple with God. We want to spiritually prosper, don't we? Every church that calls upon the name of the Lord wants to be doing better, wants to be worshiping more joyfully, wants to be following, obeying, serving the Lord more fully. And in this text today, we find some clues as to how the people of God prospered on this occasion. When I say prosper, don't make any mistake about it. I'm not talking about financial prosperity or physical prosperity. I'm talking about spiritual prosperity. We find here that at this occasion in Israel's life, the building of God, the temple, finally comes to a conclusion. And they wrap up their work and they begin to worship. And in this text, we find clues as to what has caused this people at this time, in this place, in this temple to prosper. And the first reason is because God decided that it would be so. Because God decreed it. Because in God's providence and God's good purposes, he poured out his spirit upon them in such a way that their worship was filled with joy and expectation. The second clue we find here is for a church, for a temple of God to thrive and to prosper, spiritually speaking, is a church that sits under the word of God, under the instruction of God. We'll come to that next. But first, providence. Did you see there are specific dates, times, and details here, not just so that we could put it on the calendar, but so that we would know that God is involved in the de details of history. He's involved in the nitty-gritty of each of our lives through sovereign purposes, a decree that he has made that all things will be as he wants them to be. And here we learn that in the month of Adar, which is the last, last month of, of their calendar, the equivalent of our basically February, maybe early March, that in this year, after 70 years, when the temple had been laid to the ground, now it was finally rebuilt. And the work that had begun on September 21, 520 BC, now comes to completion, four and a half or so years later. And Ezra makes it clear that this temple was built according to the decree of God, to the purposes of God. But isn't it so like God to use secondary means? To use tools in his hands to carry out his divine sovereign purposes? It is ultimately his decree that we read about here that informs and empowers the people of God to obey these other small king's decrees. Darius, 
Cyrus, and Artaxerxes. God uses means in his providence. These tools are used in his hand to carry out what he wants to carry out. Even kings, powerful kings of huge and vast empires like Persia. In Proverbs 21.1, we read this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So we do not praise the tool that is used, the means that God uses. We praise the craftsman, don't we? When you see a beautiful painting, you don't turn to the paintbrush and praise the paintbrush. You praise the painter, the artist. So to hear as much as there have been decrees by Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, which we'll come to in a minute, behind it stood the sovereign purposes and providence of God. That without his permission and without his blessing, this temple would have never been built, regardless of what Cyrus decreed or Darius decreed or Artaxerxes decreed. And let's talk about Artaxerxes because this is the elephant in the room if you were paying close attention to this text. Because we know nowhere in history of a decree given by Artaxerxes that was for Israel. And furthermore, Artaxerxes served 50 years later than the time frame that we are focused on here in chapter 6. So what's going on here? Well, the best resolution is to recognize that Ezra is doing something which he did a few chapters ago in chapter 4. He's not doing a flashback. He's doing a flash forward. He's looking forward 50 years from now, because he writes this book after that time, to mention this as there's going to be more to build. Yes, the temple's done. Notice, chapter, notice verse 14. It doesn't say that the temple was built and finished. It says the, the building was finished. But there's a broader sense of that word because in a number of decades, there's going to come the final wave of exiles with Nehemiah to build and construct the wall of Jerusalem. So Ezra's taking the zoom-out view of history and putting all these, these kings together. Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes 50 years later to say that God's sovereign decree and purposes spanned the whole distance of time. But ultimately here, the main thrust, the main event here aren't the details, but it is that God is in control of the details. And providence prevails. His decree will come about. Nothing, no king can alter it. No decree can change it. It can only be used in the hand of God after God has decreed it. And this control that God has, this good God has, who is not only a father who cares for you and me, but whose hands are tied like me sometimes when I want to care for my children, but who is almighty God and can change things, and will according to his will, this God who is in control of all of the details of your life should be an enormous source of comfort for us. Perhaps in some of your minds comes the text that many of you love from Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you spiritually, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Listen to what Scottish Presbyterian of the 17th century Thomas Boston says about the comfort that God is in control. Let the people of God comfort themselves in all cases by this doctrine of divine decrees and amidst whatever befalls them, rest quietly and submissively in the bosom of God, considering that whatever comes or can come to pass proceeds from the decree of their gracious friend and reconciled father who knows what is best for them 
and will make all things work together for their good. And oh, what a sweet and pleasant life would you have under the heaviest pressures of affliction? And what heavenly serenity and tranquility of mind would you enjoy? And would you cheerfully acquiesce in the good will and pleasure of God and embrace every dispensation, however sharp it may be, because it is determined and appointed for you by the eternal counsel of his good will. On this occasion in Israel's life, God's providence is sweet. So they prosper. God's opening up blessing. He's opening up doorways through kings who decree things that they want to be decreed. The laws are on their side. But don't make any mistake about it. This Israel, for 70 years, has been experiencing the bitter providence of God in exile. And still sovereign in control when Nebuchadnezzar's on the throne. And they're under his thumb. And the laws don't go their way. Do you see here that God is sovereign in his purposes and in his decrees, sometimes through the bitter providences to purge and to purify his church, to prune her and to sanctify her? And at other times, he pours out his prosperous blessing to cause his church to flourish and to thrive. Sometimes shrinking, sometimes oppressed, sometimes the, the laws are on our side, and sometimes not. And yet God is still on the throne. Even though it looks bad and feels bad, we know that God has our good in mind. Romans 8, 28, that Boston just alluded to. And we know that for those who love God, he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, every time I quote from Romans 8, 28, I give you the caution, don't throw that straight in the face of someone who's suffering. Unhelpful. But it doesn't diminish the power of the truth that is contained in Romans 8, 28. He works all things together for the good, even in your darkest moments or your most happy moments. Without this sovereign decree of God behind all things, the temple would never be built. But because his decree has been to prosper them, to give them everything they needed, remember last week, all the supplies they needed. Here you need more, we'll open the treasury for you. Go ahead and build and we'll come help you. But the Lord's providence stands behind it all. Therefore, they prospered. The second thing that made them prosper is that they sat themselves, they put themselves under the word of God. It remained at the center there. Look at it in verse 14. The elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. It is under their ministry, the ministry of God's word, that they prospered. Verse 18. They set up priests in their divisions, Levites, and the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. They are putting themselves as a people of God, calling on the name of God under the word of God. And God is causing the work of their hands to flourish. You know, it, it took about four and a half years to make this one. It took Solomon 20 years. But God was prospering them as they centered around their life around God's word. Consider what Joshua 1.8 says. But the, but the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. So you shall be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Why? For then you will make your way prosperous, same word, and then you will have good success. This is why Fourth Presbyterian Church is all about the ministry of the word. 
It starts with the word, the call to worship. It ends with the word in the benediction. And the word is all throughout the service. You don't have to wait for the sermon to hear the gospel because we confess our sins and we hear the assurance of pardon. As we put ourselves under this word, God will prosper his church as it is faithfully preached and as it is faithfully received with joy. When I was in seminary up in uh, New England, I went to this uh, church, like lots of churches in New England, in the center of town, uh, white church, white steeple, uh, built you know, hundreds of years ago. And uh, this was, church was a part of a denomination that had all but given up on the word of God because apparently they didn't think it was working or that it was worth it or that it was popular. So they gave up on the word of God, but this church hadn't. This church was faithful to the word. And the place was booming. There were people sitting on the stairwells going up to the balcony. They couldn't see anything. They wanted to hear the word of God preached. And every year, without fail, the denominational leaders would come to the pastor of that church and say, what's your trick? What are you doing? And he'd say, of course, I'm just preaching the gospel of God according to the word of God. And the place is full. Imagine that. That the church in its worship prospers under the word of God. That is why everything we do, say, pray, sing, and think at Fourth Church is to flow from the word of God because it is our authority and everything in between, beginning and end and middle. And when we do that, prayerfully and faithfully, if God so decrees, he'll make us thrive and prosper. But look at the first thing they do when they begin to worship. They come straight in and they deal with their sin problem. They bring sacrifices as they're dedicating this temple. And they confess their sins. And they look to the blood of these animals as a sacrifice, as a symbol that, yes, my sins are forgiven. I just laid my hands on that precious little lamb, on that goat, on that ram. My sins have been transferred to it and it is slaughtered so that I go free. And they hear the conviction of sin and they hear the good news of the gospel. That's why at the beginning of the service, we confess our sins and then we hear of the assurance of pardon. For we know we do not need to come in here with bulls and lambs because we come in here trusting in the blood of the Lamb of God who is slain before the foundation of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world once and for all. And so as we confess and as we hear the gospel declared today from Romans 5 and from many other places in the scripture Sunday by Sunday, we're led to the cross of Christ and the forgiving heart of our God that gives us freedom, cleansing, and wholeness. And the only response to that is the response that occurs here. Joy. Joy. Verse 16, there's joy. Verse 22, there's joyful worship. Grace, grace should always lead us to joyful worship. Let's get over the frozen chosen as Presbyterians. Let's, let's make that never be said again. I even I kind of poked fun with the 8 o'clock people because they're less awake than at least some of you. Um, there should be characterized in the worship of Fourth Presbyterian Church because we do our best to stick to God's word that he might prosper us. Not humdrum, dull, or boring, but you should smile more. You should laugh more. You should rejoice more because your sins are forgiven. Not just the preachers, 
not just the person to your right or left, but yours if you are in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. That is to produce exuberant joy. I read of one preacher who mentioned this story of Franz Joseph Haydn. He wrote exuberant music, and it was criticized by all the somber people in the church because that's way too cheery for our tastes, okay? And he said, writing down, he said, since God has given me a cheerful heart, he will forgive me for serving his church cheerfully, okay? And when Haydn was setting his music, his mass to words, the words that go like this in English, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he crafted it, he says here, to quote him, with an uncontrollable gladness. He even had to go so far as to apologize to the empress and said to her, explaining to her that the certainty of God's grace had made him so happy that he wrote a joyful melody for somber words. The somberness and power and sublime nature of the cross brings joyful praise. These people haven't been able to worship or write for decades. And now the doors are open wide. They celebrate the dedication of this feast. They bring their gifts, their sacrifices. And here we note that if you compare how many gifts and sacrifices they bring compared to what Solomon brought in his time, it's totally nothing compared to it. It's totally meager. Likely because they're a whole lot poorer in this season of, of their national life. But that didn't diminish their joy. That didn't diminish the joy of their worship. So a month and a half later, now in the first month of their calendar, they celebrate the Passover. The Passover where they remember they're clean, where they remember they're free, where they remember that those who enslaved them in Egypt are now covered in the sea that has judged them. And why did God save them in that Passover? As they look back with thankful hearts at this event that would have been their cross event, if you will, for an Old Testament saint. They look back on it with joyful praise because God delivered them from their enemy and he delivered them to go do what? To wander in the wilderness? No, to worship. Yes, they wandered, but they were called originally to go worship. And now we've seen in Ezra this, this second Passover, the second exodus motif here, as now later in Israel's history, the exiles are returned to their land, a second exodus they're enjoying to go and to build God's temple and to worship, not in the wilderness like Moses did, but in God's temple. And both of these exoduses, and both of these, if you will, Passovers, are only signposts, temporarily set up in Israel's history to point to the true Passover. Our New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians 5 today said the Passover lamb has been slaughtered. So let's celebrate the feast. There is no doubt in my mind that he has Ezra chapter 6 in his mind. And the Apostle Paul is saying here, as he joyfully celebrates the Lord's, Lord's Supper, he's saying that is the gift of God, the Passover meal, eating, the, eating that feast, that wonderful barbecue we now have in this small, simple meal of a cup and bread that looks back to our exodus where our enemy was conquered, not by the covering of water, not by a decree that set us free by any human king, but by the decree of God who in eternity saw to it that his son would be crucified for sinners like you and me and take on our guilt and punishment as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and that his sacrifice would mean the forgiveness of your sins, the wholeness of your life, the hope of everlasting life. And this was done not through any king who made the laws 
happy and appropriate and comfortable for them, but through the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It wasn't a political pawn that caused them to flourish. It was Jesus Christ, God's son. The meal they celebrated at the Passover was a covenant meal. Only covenant people could enjoy it still today. Our meal is a covenant meal. This is my blood, says Jesus. It's the new covenant written in my blood. You don't need any other blood. It's been once and for all shed for you. And it's a covenant meal. But this covenant meal isn't just for the Israelites. Did you see in verse 21? This is a beautiful thing. Don't miss the pieces. In verse 21, others were there with them. Others who separated themselves, presumably who were living in the land. Those who were Gentile converts, as God always intended it to be when he blessed Abraham and told him to go and be a blessing. That was a miserable failure. And now God is showing, hey, I want to bring more into my family to the extent he's so committed to this that Rahab and Ruth make it into Jesus' genealogy. Because God has always been about the diversity of the nations, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Revelation 7, 9. But do you recall back in Ezra 4 when the, uh, the people living in the land were trying to dupe the Israelites and they said, hey, we'll help you build. Give us a hammer. Give us a beam. We'll, we'll help you build this building. And they said, no, no, no. We're going to build it alone. You stay away. Because I think they could read through their scheme. They seem like they're selfish, narrow-minded, nationalistic people. But here we see that they're adding to their number those who could participate in this covenant meal from pagan nations. They didn't win them through pagan practices, through some gimmick that they say, maybe people will be attracted to the church if we just get with the cultural program. But they left the cultural program and accepted the word of God and therefore were made covenant partners, engrafted into the one family of faith. And God gave them this meal. So this is not a group of closed-minded, Gentile-despising Jews. They, under the flourishing hand of God, sitting under the word of God, got the picture of what God's wanted them to get all along and that we need to get. God is always about all nations, tribes, and peoples. And he wants people to be converted as this gospel is preached. The day after that, immediately following that, a seven-day feast uh, occurs, the unleavened bread. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 12. Now, there's one more elephant in the room, too. Aren't you lucky today? And I know we're deep into the sermon, and you're deep into your slump. Uh, but I would be remiss if I didn't point out in verse 22, if you missed it, where it says, and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. Is that a typo? We're talking about the kingdom of Persia, not a kingdom of another era, of a previous era. So what's going on here? Well, it's not uncommon in the ancient Near Eastern world to call yourself the king of not only your kingdom, the present kingdom, but all the ones that have come previously that you conquered, that you absorbed, you brought into your own. So appropriate to call these kings kings of Assyria as well. Furthermore, Assyrians are the ones that started all this mess in 721 as they attacked the northern kingdom in Israel and they exiled the people. And then Babylon took over in 586 and attacked the southern kingdom of Judah and then exiled them. So it all began with these horrible Assyrians and now God is saying in his sovereign decree, I've been over it all. It's not just that Cyrus is a good guy. Even wicked Assyrian kings, Babylonian kings, and Medo-Persian kings stand under the sovereign hand 
of God's providential dealings with his people. And the result of keeping this feast was joy again, verse 22. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. Why? For the Lord had made them joyful. It wasn't the laws that made them changed that made them joyful. It was the Lord in their midst as they worshiped him and called upon his name and were his temple that brought them joy. Joy ultimately does not come because the heart of the king was turned toward them. He's just some pawn in the hand of God, used sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. But it's not ultimately his heart that is turned, but it's the king of kings' heart that is turned towards us that brings joy. And the only way he can do that is because he turned his heart from his son as his son hung on the cross for sinners like us to make you clean, to purify you. Did you see in the second part, they, they come pure? All because of the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is God turning towards us. How can we not, Sunday by Sunday, turn to him with joyful praise? Let's pray and ask him for help to do that. Father in heaven, uh, thank you that you're not simply there, but you're here. By your spirit, we pray that you would stir in us a renewed joy in our worship, Father. We want it to be characterized by joy. Even when we come in here miserable, help us, Father, to lift our eyes beyond the circumstances and to see, as it were, heaven peeled back, the veil peeled back, that we could almost, as it were, by faith, hear the perfected saints in glory in that final temple worshiping you, and we would join our hearts with them, our joy not yet perfected, but may it be more and more full as we rest upon your word, as we trust in your providence, and as we look to Jesus Christ, who has turned to us because you turn from him. We pray this in his name. Amen.